1: Sin City Stories contains explicit content that may be disturbing to some listeners, including strong language, graphic details, and depictions of violent crimes. Listener discretion is advised. The 1979 daylight abduction of a teenager from a parking lot nearby her Las Vegas high school absolutely stunned the local community. It was only a few weeks before the body of Kim Bryant was discovered in the desert surrounding the city but it would be four decades before police would finally be able to figure out who was responsible for her tragic death. Since its founding on May 15, 1905, Las Vegas has gone from being a small railway stop in the middle of the Mojave Desert to a glittering neon oasis of gambling, shopping, fine dining, and entertainment, welcoming tens of millions of visitors from around the world every year. Through its relatively short history, the city has been witness to over a century's worth of murder, robberies, arson, and mayhem. And that's what we're here to share with you. In collaboration with mayheminthedesert.com, this is Sin City Stories, Vegas True Crime. The sordid tales behind the stranger than fiction history of fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. It's January 26, 1979, a few miles from the Las Vegas Strip at the campus of Western High School. The school is alive with activity as students register for classes for the coming semester. Among the throngs of teenagers is 16-year-old sophomore Kim Bryant. Kim is well-known at Western High for her outgoing nature and volunteer work. Kim wades through a sea of her classmates on this chilly winter's day, accompanied by a friend as they exit the school. With class registration over and done with, the two girls are free from responsibilities for the rest of the day. The pair cross Decatur Boulevard, one of the city's busier streets, on their way to a Dairy Queen situated directly across from the school's football field. Kim and her friend chat as they wait in front of that classic 70s teen hangout spot known for its dip cones and dilly bars. The Dairy Queen won't open for another few hours, but Kim's friend is waiting at this agreed-upon meeting spot for a ride from her mother. Several other kids from the school are also hanging out in a nearby parking lot within view of Kim and her companion. Before long, a late 1950s Chevy with a sanded silver-gray primer finish and sporting raised-back wheels pulls into the DQ parking lot. Two young men inside the vehicle make some suggestive and uninvited comments to the high school girls. Kim is no wilting flower, she and her friend respond with some obscene words of their own and tell the men in the car where they can go. The car speeds off and merges back into the traffic flowing southbound along Decatur Boulevard. Shortly thereafter, another car pulls up into the Dairy Queen parking lot, this time it's the mother of Kim's friend, who offers Kim a ride home. After all, her house isn't that far out of the way. She declines the ride, Kim's boyfriend is on the way to pick her up, and he should be there any minute. That decision will place her square in the sights of a predator. Kim's friend and her mother drive off, and Kim is left standing alone in front of the Dairy Queen. It's now 10.10 a.m. The abduction is over in a matter of seconds. One moment, Kim Bryant is standing in front of a business establishment along a heavily trafficked street, and the next moment, she's gone. Taken. There's no trace of Kim when her boyfriend arrives at the Dairy Queen just 20 minutes later at approximately 10.30 a.m. It's now getting close to 12.30 p.m., A few blocks away from Western High, in a quiet Las Vegas neighborhood, Kim's mother, Sherry Elliott, is resisting a creeping sense of panic and dread. She and Kim are scheduled to go on a shopping trip soon, but Sherry's daughter still isn't home. And most concerning, Kim hasn't even called to say she's running late. Kim Bryant is what most parents would call a good kid. In fact, Sherry can't even recall the last time Kim wasn't home on time. But Sherry also doesn't want to overreact. Kim is a teenager after all, and this wouldn't be the first time a teen girl didn't come home on time while out with her boyfriend. But Sherry just can't shake her sense of worry. She leaves the family's quiet home on Banjo Street and gets into her car to search the neighborhood for her daughter. Darkness falls without any sign of Kim there's now no longer any doubt in the mind of Kim's mother that something is terribly wrong. Sherry Elliott and her husband Edward Elliott, Kim's stepfather, drive to the nearest Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department substation to file a missing persons report. Sherry and Edward tell the officer on duty that it's unlike Kim to be even 15 minutes late without giving her parents a call. But in the course of providing information to the police, Sherry mentions that she and Kim had gotten into a heated argument the previous night. The demeanor of the police officer taking the report changes once he hears this news. It's clear to him what's happening here, as he explains to Kim's parents. I know this is tough to hear, but it sounds like your daughter ran away, ma'am. She's probably at a friend's house cooling off. I bet she's back home in a few nights. Sherry and Edward protest, but it makes no difference. The decision has been made that police resources are better devoted to real crimes and not a sulking runaway girl. If the police won't listen, then Kim's parents will take matters into their own hands. But the couple quickly run into another wall in their efforts to publicize Kim's disappearance. In a frustrating Catch-22, local media outlets won't report on the disappearance until police officially report Kim missing. The day following Kim's abduction and after a night of futilely driving around the city in search of Kim, her stepfather barges into a metro police station, angry and scared, demanding that something, anything, be done to find his little girl. The officer on duty tells Edward Elliott to hold on while he gets someone to help. Edward's frustrated entreaties result in two detectives from the juvenile division being dispatched to his residence. But in a terrible twist, what the detectives find in Kim's room only leads to more delay in the search for the missing girl. Inside of a diary, detectives discover scribblings where Kim talks about wanting to run away. This only confirms what police already believe, that Kim has joined the dozens of other Vegas teens that run away from home each year. Her case remains a low priority it will be nearly a week before police realize the horrible mistake they've made. Sometime around noon on the day that Kim Bryant disappeared from the Dairy Queen, a motorist driving along Decatur Boulevard noticed something out of place, a backpack in the center meridian. The driver pulled over to examine the bag and upon opening it, she discovers a driver's license and other personal items belonging to Kim Bryant. The driver used a nearby payphone to call Kim's home, but there was no answer. Information about Kim's backpack won't come to the attention of the police until a full week after Kim disappears. And when it does, Kim is finally declared a missing person by Vegas police. A brief article appears on page two in the February 3rd, 1979 edition of the Las Vegas Review-Journal, recounting the few known facts surrounding the abduction of Kim Bryant. Despite this publicity, the weeks pass with no sign of the vibrant teenager that has disappeared with barely a trace. School is out on the afternoon of February 20th, 1979, and three teenage boys are passing the few remaining daylight hours with a hike through the desert on the western edge of Las Vegas. As they near a power substation standing solitary at the edge of Buffalo Avenue and Charleston Boulevard, one of the trio, 14-year-old Alan Jones, spots what appears to be a wig tangled amidst the dirt and rocks. This is part of the fun of wandering the endless expanse around Vegas as a youth, discovering the oddities abandoned to the vast void of the desert. The group moves a little closer to the strange find before stopping in their tracks. Shock, disgust and a hint of nausea gripped the three boys. Lying face down in a shallow gully is the body of a young woman, her corpse covered with random debris, part of a hasty effort by her killer to conceal the crime scene. After the initial shock wears off, the boys run to look for help. They soon spot a police car traveling along Charleston Boulevard and flag down the officer to report their gruesome discovery. It's not long before detectives with the Metro Homicide Unit are on site to examine the crime scene investigators quickly determine that the body they're examining is that of kim bryant and the cause of death is also apparent kim was struck in the head several times with a rock most likely by one of the many stones scattered around the disposal site kim's body is nude from the waist down further testing by the crime lab would reveal that she had been sexually assaulted prior to her murder the evidence also makes it clear that kim did not go down without a fight marks on her hands show she engaged in a sustained struggle with her killer or killers. The rapidly growing community of Las Vegas is horrified by the brutal slaying of Kim Bryant. The short blurbs about her disappearance on the inside pages of the local papers are replaced with large front page headlines proclaiming her tragic murder. Hundreds turn out to honor Kim's memory, and as she's being laid to rest at Palm Memorial Park in Las Vegas. Homicide detectives are on the hunt for those responsible for her death. Police promised swift action to locate suspects in the teenager's sling. Kim's family note that she was not involved in the drug scene or other dangerous activities. In a city known for offering every conceivable type of vice, Kim steered clear of those temptations. However, she did exhibit a level of innocence which brought her into contact with potential predators. Police are flooded with tips in the days immediately after Kim's bodies discovered in the desert outside of Las Vegas. The most promising initial information is from witnesses claiming Kim was taken by several men in a jeep. The individuals associated with the Jeep are quickly located by police, but they all provide solid alibis to investigators. Things go downhill after this initial promising lead. Detectives with the Metro Homicide Unit are now chasing any tip, no matter how far-fetched. They even travel all the way to Michigan to follow up with a man who says he witnessed Kim's murder. When police arrive in the Great Lakes State, the man confesses, just not to the murder of Kim Bryant. He tells detectives he claimed to have information about the case after overhearing a group of local kids talking about the crime. The would-be witness just wanted some publicity. After the initial flurry of investigative activity, the weeks begin to slowly pass without any solid suspects. Matters aren't helped by the fact that Las Vegas is experiencing a significant increase in its homicide rate during 1979. There are 25 murders in Sin City by mid-March of that year, compared to 14 homicides over that same period the previous year. The burden created by the heavy workload is compounded by chronic understaffing, with only nine detectives on the entire homicide team. The head of the Detective Bureau, Commander Eric Cooper, tells local reporters that detectives are forced to abandon their work on old cases to work on new murders. Because we have so few investigators, they have to deal with the murders that are fresh because you can't let a crime scene grow old. The most frustrating aspect of the crime for investigators is the lack of viable eyewitness information, despite Kim being abducted in broad daylight. Police questioned several teens that were hanging out in a parking lot next to the Dairy Queen the day of the kidnapping, but they report seeing nothing unusual. It was as if Kim had simply vanished In the summer of 1979, several months after Kim Bryant's murder, the Las Vegas Review-Journal runs a lengthy feature on the status of the investigation into the unsolved case. The news story jogs the memory of two of Kim's classmates at Western High School. The unidentified students report that on one of the days during registration week, they were approached by two young men driving a mid to late 1950s Chevy, bearing Nevada plates and sporting a coat of silver primer paint with light primer spots and raised back wheels. The men in this distinctive vehicle attempted to entice the girls into their car with an offer to sell them jewelry. But the students grew suspicious when they peered in the back seat and saw only a large walnut grain speaker Trusting their instincts, the girls rebuffed the strange man's offer, the occupants of the car yelled several obscenities, and then sped off. In a boon to investigators, both students had gotten a good look at the passenger in the Chevy. The students provided independent descriptions to police, allowing detectives to create the first sketch of a potential suspect in the Kim Bryant case. The 18 to 19-year-old man in the drawing developed by police hosts shaggy blonde hair and droopy stoner eyes. The girls also remember the driver as a man in his early 20s with a mustache and medium brown hair. Detective Bob Hilliard, head of the murder investigation, has some comments for reporters after the sketch is released, saying the possible suspects, quote, both look like grubby, hippie types one of the few consistent facts throughout the kim bryant investigation is that kim and her friend were approached by an old chevy while they waited in front of the dairy queen she and her friend exchanged obscenities with the occupants of the car before it sped off down decatur boulevard the two unidentified teenage witnesses that were solicited by the occupants of the chevy a few days before kim's abduction both told police that the men became enraged when the girls refused to get into their car it finally seemed like the investigation might be heating up. A torrent of calls flood into the police after the local news runs the sketch of the potential suspect in the Kim Bryant murder. For the first time, there's a face to pin to the crime. But this buzz of activity sputters out after a few weeks as none of the dozens of tips lead to a name to affix to the man depicted in the sketch. Among the increased number of homicides in the Las Vegas Valley during 1979 is that of Bobby Jean Thomas, a 37-year-old roofer who goes missing the day after Kim Bryant's abduction. Over a month passes after his disappearance before his body is found on a dirt road about a mile from Hoover Dam. Thomas has suffered approximately 36 stab wounds, including a stab wound to the eye, which appears to be a personal touch. Not long after the mutilated remains are discovered on a desert pathway, police investigators are faced with a question. Did the crimes of Bobby Jean Thomas include the abduction and murder of Kim Bryant? Thomas, a native of California who had made Las Vegas' his home for close to 20 years, was a known menace to the community ever since his arrival in the city. Thomas's criminal history begins on a cold night in January of 1970. A little after 10 p.m., 20-year-old Christine McKinney is trying to start her stalled vehicle on Las Vegas Boulevard. Suddenly, she's grabbed around the waist from behind, but after a brief struggle, she's able to escape her attacker. Bobby Thomas is arrested for the attack and faces charges of assault with intent to commit a crime. A few years later, Thomas is at the center of a much more heinous crime. On January 15, 1972, Catherine Hines drops her three younger children off at the home of her eldest daughter, Mary Hines. Also home is Mary's common-law husband, Bobby Thomas. One of the children spending the night at the Thomas household on Oahu Street is 14-year-old Helen Hines. But when Catherine returns to her daughter's home the following morning, she encounters every parent's worst nightmare. Bobby Thomas lets Catherine into the house and goes back to watching TV in the living room. Not long after Catherine enters one of the back bedrooms, there's a blood-curdling scream. (coughs) Hearing the commotion, Thomas enters the bedroom and sees Helen Hines lying unresponsive in her bed. When Catherine demands to know what happened to her daughter, Thomas awkwardly responds by showing some pill bottles and says, Helen must have gotten into these. An autopsy determines that Helen died of a fatal overdose of cecobarbital and amobarbital, a pair of very strong sedatives. The coroner's report also contains another disturbing finding. Helen was sexually assaulted before her death. Thomas is arrested on charges of statutory rape and involuntary manslaughter in relation to the death of Helen Hines. He makes bail and continues working as a roofer while awaiting trial. Then only days before trial, he strikes a deal with prosecutors. Thomas will plead guilty to the statutory rape charge in exchange for having the manslaughter charges dismissed. Thomas is eventually sentenced to the maximum term possible of 10 years behind bars but he's paroled after only serving a portion of this sentence, and not long after his release, he meets his brutal end in the desert outside Las Vegas. At 24 years of age, Ronnie Lee Fain has already spent most of his life confined within the California penal system. Hoping a change of scenery will lead to a change of circumstances, Fane moves to Las Vegas after being released from prison in 1978. Only a few years after arriving in Vegas, Fane is arrested in connection with the murder of Bobby Jean Thomas in early 1980, just over a year after Thomas's body was found stabbed along an isolated road near Hoover Dam. Fane secures the services of respected Las Vegas defense attorney Tom Patero. Shortly after that, Fane reaches out to prosecutors to make a deal. Not only will he confess to the killing of Bobby Thomas, but he'll also provide information that will let police close the Kim Bryant case. In a Las Vegas courtroom on April 22, 1980, Ronnie Lee Fane stands before District Court Judge Carl Christensen and pleads guilty to a second-degree murder charge for killing Bobby Jean Thomas. Fane then proceeds to recount his version of the events of January 27, 1979. That day, he had joined Bobby Thomas on a drive to the forests of nearby Mount Charleston for an afternoon of drinking. Along for the ride were two other men. One he knew as the Worm and the other he knew as the Hulk. With night falling early, the group made the drive back toward the lights of Las Vegas. After dropping off the Worm and the Hulk, it was just Fane and Thomas in the car. Bobby Thomas was so drunk at this point that most of his ramblings to Fane made little to no sense. But then Thomas started to tell a clearer story to his new companion. Thomas tells Fane about how he had kidnapped and raped a young woman out in the desert the previous day. Fane continues driving in a shocked state as Thomas goes on to confess that he then proceeded to murder his victim and leave her body on the outskirts of town. After hearing Thomas admit to this brutal murder, Fane feels bound by what he calls prison honor to avenge the girl's death. Fane parks the car in front of his home and tells Thomas to hold on for a moment while he runs inside. Fane retrieves a knife from inside the house and returns to the car. Then he immediately begins stabbing Bobby Thomas upon entering the vehicle. After killing his new acquaintance, Fane drives out to the desolate area outside Hoover Dam to dispose of the corpse. I I was enraged when he started bragging about what he did. That's why I killed him. Fane passes two independently administered lie detector tests before prosecutors accept his plea. Detective Herb Barrett, the lead investigator on the Thomas murder case, places a lot of weight on Fane's ability to pass the polygraph exams. He also finds it persuasive that Fane correctly identifies the brand of beer on a bottle located near the Kim Bryant disposal site. Barrett talks to reporters after Fane's confession. Kim Bryant was last seen alive in a car with four men. Now we're only looking for three. But Detective Bob Hilliard, head of the Kim Bryant investigation, is doubtful about Fane's claim that Bobby Thomas is behind Kim's killing there's the unidentified witness to Kim's abduction from in front of the Dairy Queen, who Hilliard describes only as an older man and a prominent local businessman who was shown the Jeep identified by Fane as the vehicle Thomas used to abduct Kim. The businessman informs Detective Hilliard it's not the same vehicle used to take Kim. Detective Hilliard conducts his own review of Fane's polygraph exam results and concludes that they only show Fane was truthful in denying he had any role in Kim Bryant's murder and that Thomas had made some vague rumblings about having attacked a woman. Hilliard's doubts increase when police receive a report from a woman who was taken out into the desert by Thomas the day before his murder. Thomas had attempted to sexually assault her, but upon being unable to perform, he apologized to the woman and let her go. Investigators on the Bryant case surmised that in his drunken state, Thomas mixed up the attempted rape that occurred the same day as Kim's abduction with the fatal overdose he'd been responsible for years before when rambling about his past to Fane. Further holes are poked in the theory that Bobby Thomas is behind Kim's murder when the biggest champion of the theory, Detective Barrett, concedes that Fane never mentioned Kim's name in his initial confession to the Thomas murder. In fact, Fane's confession didn't include any details not already publicly known about the Kim Bryant slaying. Fane himself said all he knew was that Bobby Jean Thomas had raped and killed a teenager until his attorney told him the name Kim Bryant's Then, he started putting that name to the story told by Thomas. And as for the beer bottle found at the crime scene, it had been located 70 yards away from Kim's body. Detective Hilliard believes this could have been left by unsuspecting individuals just enjoying a drink in the desert. In the end, there were just too many weaknesses in the theory that Bobby Thomas murdered Kim Bryant for investigators to be able to close the case. As often happens in an unsolved murder, there are ebbs and flows that mark the progression of such investigations. And although it seemed as if Las Vegas police had hit yet another brick wall in their quest to find Kim Bryan's killer, the coming years would lead to a much more promising suspect. One who was responsible for the abductions of two other Las Vegas women from public places only a year after Kim's kidnapping. To learn more about this Las Vegas true crime story and many others, visit mayheminthedesert.com and get yourself acquainted with the darker side of Sin City's history. Sin City Stories, Vegas True Crime is based on material researched and written by Megan and Anthony Smith and is adapted for podcast, edited, and narrated by Jeff Walker. Sin City Stories, Vegas True Crime is a co-production of Mayhem in the Desert and Walker New Media. Copyright 2024
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac burger, McNuggets or McCrispy sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day.